Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Raj Basord and I'm a consultant psychiatrist at the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospitals in South London. Uh, today we're talking to Dr. Neil Greenberg, who's a senior lecturer in military psychiatry at the Institute of Psychiatry. And he and some co-authors have published a very interesting paper in the British Journal of Psychiatry in the April issue, and the title of which is Enduring Consequences of Terrorism, Seven-Month Follow-Up Survey of Reactions to the Bombings in London on the 7th of July, 2005. Now, uh, Neil, this is a very interesting paper where you're having a look at how people reacted to uh, those infamous bombings on the 7th of July. But before we talk directly about the paper, why is there an interest um, from psychiatrists in um, bad things like terrorist events. We, we know surely that bad things are going to have a negative impact on people's mental health. Is there something particular about terrorist events which makes us feel this could have a particularly negative effect on people's mental health over and above other bad things that we know that happen to people? Well, I think one of the aspects of trauma um, and particularly terrorism and trauma that is uh, of interest to mental health is that Events which are out of control and are caused by external agents tend to attract more PTSD than natural events such as earthquakes or other sorts of natural disasters. And when you say PTSD, you mean post-traumatic stress disorder? I mean post-traumatic stress disorder. But you're quite right to bring that point up because actually depressive illnesses, adjustment disorders and other anxiety disorders are also quite prevalent after these sorts of events. And we shouldn't just concentrate on PTSD, uh, although the media seem very interested in it. I thought there was some uh, interesting idea around that one of the things that determines uh, the, the impact on people's mental health in terms of a traumatic incident, be it an earthquake or something like a terrorist incident, is whether it's man-made or not. So natural disasters seem to have a different impact to man-made disasters. Absolutely, and um, certainly you, it'd be pretty easy to argue that terrorism is man-made. Um, but also one of the other interesting things in the field of uh, traumatology, if you want to call it that, is that the natural disasters, such as, say, the tsunami, are often made into man-made ones by the response of a variety of departments and so although people accept that the tsunami happened and that's bad they'll say well, we didn't respond quick enough we didn't predict it properly so there is a, a tendency to make uh, natural disasters into man-made ones and there is some evidence that man-made disasters tend to create worse reactions isn't that right that, that that's that's entirely correct and why might that be well because one of the interesting and, and important facets of, of psychological trauma is, is the attribution of blame um, and that can also be self-blame or blame on others, and it's clearly easy to, to blame other people, but particularly the responders, and the, the government often comes into uh, the media's uh, far line for this, um, when things go badly wrong. And so when the natural disaster happens, it's, it's relatively easy to attribute it to an act of God or to some natural process, which is actually psychologically more healthy. So now let's talk about your paper. Of course, what's really interesting about research into unpredictable events like bombings is it's very difficult to do research on them in terms of the impact on people. So how did you go about constructing this study? Well, um, it was difficult, and actually, uh, Dr. James Rubin was uh, was a complete star in the, in this sense, and 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 he he led the team in the in the practical elements of trying to organise funding, uh, to get together a research team, uh, write a proposal, and get ethical approval, all within a, a very very short space of time. The the first paper we uh, actually wrote um, was conducted between eleven and thirteen days after the first sets of bombings in 2005. Uh, and so you, you can see there's an awful lot of effort that goes into a very short amount of time. And so he, he 
and, and the rest of us, to some extent, did a, did a wonderful job. So were you guys on standby? Were you, were you, in a way, waiting for a traumatic event to occur in order to start studying it? Um, not really, no. We, the nature of the King Centre for Military Health Research uh, and the associated groups that work with it is that we, we're very used to looking into psychological stress in large populations such as the military or even journalists. Um, and so we had the, the mechanics to make this happen. Uh, but obviously no one, including us, could predict the, uh, the actual bombings themselves. So the bombings happened. So what did you guys then do? What was the first step in terms of studying it? Um, well, once the bombings happened, we decided that this was interesting, uh, that we could research it, and we talked to the Health Protection Agency. Uh, and you'll see Dr Simpson, who's uh, part of the paper, um, actually helped organise the, the funding. And clearly that didn't come through quickly, but he agreed that it would happen. We then sat down and very quickly wrote an ethical proposal uh, and submitted that to the Ethics Committee. At the same time, uh, obviously, we needed to put together a questionnaire. Now, because of the nature of the work that we do anyway, we were quite well versed with the different types of research that had gone on, say, after 9-11 uh, and, and other bombings. And so we were kind of ready in the sense that with the knowledge, uh, but actually making it work did take time. So you went out and surveyed people's reactions, more or less immediately after the incident? Yeah, well, we, uh, we made use of uh, a machinery that was already there, and we used Mori, who you may well have heard of, who, uh, who go and do exit polls and, and the like. And what we did is by contacting them and crossing their palm with a little bit of silver and gold, uh, we were able to convince them to do the research on our behalf. Um, so we gave them quite um, close instructions, and they carried out the initial uh, and indeed the follow-up uh, research by telephone interview. And so they telephone, telephone interviewed who? Um, they took a random sample of, of Londoners. Uh, and so the, the idea initially was to, was to get about 1,000 Londoners uh, randomly by telephone survey uh, across the whole of London, which we hoped would include some people who were close to it and, and indeed some people who, who were far away. Um, and so, so that's what they did. And what sort of questions were they asked? A whole host of questions about um, where were they on the day, um, what sort of psychological effects we used a... a a scale of measuring substantial stress which had been used after the 9-11 bombings and that was obviously quite useful for comparison. Um, we also asked them about their intentions uh, such as you know would they travel less, how would this affect their life and a whole host of other qu- interesting questions such as had they read the government information leaflet that had been sent out uh, and if so did they find it useful and then a whole set of questions about their immediate responses after the bombings, uh, what did they do in particular, did they try and contact loved ones and, and did they try and use the mobile phones? You, you may well remember that the mobile phone networks went down for a while and we predicted that this would cause problems and, and, and indeed the, the research showed that it did. So how soon after the incident were these people being asked these questions? Th- that was between 11 and 13 days, which actually uh, was rather lucky because as you probably remember, 14 days later there was a second uh, uh, attempted bunch of uh, bombings on the on the subways on the tubes. So, in terms of the history of traumatology, how, how are you doing in terms of catching people soon after an event? Is this some kind of record in terms of being able to conduct research so rapidly in such a big survey after such an unpredictable incident? Um, I, I think in terms of doing such a substantial and, and dare I say it, well put together study, yes, I suppose it is a record. And uh, in, in fact, uh, Dr. Rubin almost won a, a, a very good award on the basis of that, but didn't quite get there. Um, so I think other people have done studies, but they're a lot more haphazard. Uh, and in fact, we, we've done a study on the London ambulance personnel of a, of a similar sort of nature, but it, it is a lot more haphazard because of the, the mechanics of trying to get these things organised. So now this paper, though, is a follow-up several months later. It's a seven-month follow-up. So you went back and re-interviewed the same thousand people. Well, of the thousand we tried to get hold of originally, we got about 800-ish. 
Uh, and then when we try and follow those people up, uh, we got about just under 600-ish. So we got a reasonable follow-up. And what did you find seven months on? Um, well, we found that initially uh, it had been about um, a third of the people had had substantial stress um, in the original sample. And when we surveyed them seven months on, we found that that third had gone down to just over 10%. Uh, we also found that although people intended initially not to travel on the tube so much and to use less public transport, unsurprisingly, many people had found there was no other way to get around. So people's intentions didn't always translate into, into real effects. Um, interestingly, only 1% of people, or in fact even slightly less than that, had actually gone and sought mental health um, support of, of a professional nature. And uh, that mostly people were doing well. The, the interesting findings, I, I think, are that over 80% of people found something positive had happened to them as a result of the bombings, even ones who, whose mental health may have been affected. Because um, we all know that being robust and resilient in the face of difficult events it can be good for you, and I think the research shows that too. What did you find that predicted who was not going to do so well and who was going to do very well afterwards, seven months later? Well, the predictions um, seven months later were, were difficult. Um, there were some really robust and, and, and quite classical predictors. The closer you were to the incident, the more likely you were to be psychologically distressed. Um, if you happened to know someone who was there, um, those sort of factors were important, as were, say, having previous mental health issues. Trying to tease out from the, the morass of other uh, factors was very difficult, and there really weren't any consistent predictors that we could find in, in the study. And the numbers are quite substantial, even though the, the follow-up may not be as good as we like. So I think the, the, the take-home message, really, is that there are things that we definitely know, closer to the bomb, previous problems, more likely to have longer-term issues. But actually trying to predict at a few days who's going to be ill in the future is difficult, and, and this fits in very well with, with the NICE guidelines on, on the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. And by NICE, you mean the National Institute of Clinical Excellence? That's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And what are those guidelines? Well, the, the guidelines suggest that, that actually that the, the, the term is, is used is watchful waiting, and that in the first month or so that we shouldn't be delving in with complex mental health interventions we should instead be leaving people to get on and do what they do naturally, talk to each other, get on with their lives, and that the majority of people will do well, as we found in our study. Um, and that trying to predict who won't do well is not an easy process. Now, one of the rather intriguing findings, I think, that from your study that I found particularly interesting was the, the, the nature of religion and the possible impact. Because, of course, there is some evidence that being religious... Um, is helpful in terms of dealing with stress and perhaps even perhaps particularly really quite unpredictable trauma. But you, you came up with a very interesting finding in terms of uh, Muslims. Yeah, we initially found that Muslims were very substantially uh, more likely to be in the, the group of people who were stressed. Um, at probably, we felt, as a result of the fact that, that the incidents had happened um, in association with the Muslim religion. Now, whether that was right or wrong, the media presence at the time was very much pushing towards some sort of anti-Muslim feeling. And, and we felt that initially the, the Muslim people in the study would, would have felt some association and, and perhaps even some embarrassment. However, seven months on, we found that this particular factor had disappeared. Although, to be fair, some of the people who we didn't follow up were Muslims and Muslims were, were less likely to agree to follow up that, than were other groups. So we have to be a little cautious that our data may be missing something. What about this very, very well-known buffering effect of social contact, um, having other people you can talk to? When the mobile phone network went down, thinking in terms of future crises, that might be kind of key in terms of people's coping. Did you look at people's ability to contact 
that others in 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 those in those terrible hours uh, and and what that impact that had on on people's mental health yeah in the initial study we found that if those who couldn't get hold of a loved one by mobile phone were indeed more likely to be distressed and and that was quite a significant finding Uh, and the flavor that came off the initial research wasn't that people wanted an eight-hour conversation but they wanted to assure themselves that their loved ones were safe and indeed in the follow-up we found that um, although people generally felt that their safety was, was not good, they felt that the safety of their loved ones was even worse. Um, and it seems to be that, that actually we're more concerned about people um, who we love and care for than we probably are about ourselves. Perhaps, again, it comes down to the element of control. We, we feel we can control our own lives, but we can't control what happens to those who we love. Now, you did this research in collaboration with the Health Protection Agency. That's an agency that has an interest in how uh, the government might handle um, the public in terms of future catastrophic incidents. What do you think could be taken away from this paper in terms of advice uh, to to, to populations or to people giving advice to populations about how to handle a sudden catastrophic crisis in the future? Well, I I think after the the first paper, we we tried to push out a a couple of clear messages. And one is that that people need to find some way of assuring themselves that their loved ones are safe. And uh, one can't always rely on mobile phone networks. And so maybe using an answer machine that everyone could phone into somewhere or maybe having a landline number that that was used for emergencies only would be a good idea. Um, The second thing was that um, the Health Protection Agency leaflet in the first place appeared to be helpful, although that appears that 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 help has not followed up into the follow-up study. Um, But we would certainly suggest that that where the information is made available, the Health Protection Agency do more than simply send out a leaflet, Um, but we would encourage people to read it because it appears to have been at least initially useful. Uh, and the third thing really is to be reassured to some extent that actually the uh, the epidemics of panic and fear are not likely uh, and that we shouldn't necessarily plan for a terrible case situation all the time, although obviously we need to plan sensibly. Terrorism by its very nature is about having an impact on the psychology of the population. What your research seemed to suggest is actually many months later there, were, there were, really was a relatively small impact. Is that something to do with the nature of this incident, that it was a one-off and it didn't get repeated? Um, I think that certainly is uh, part of the reason. Um, but I think also we showed in the initial um, study and a little bit of follow-up that people who had been exposed to terrorism before, and, and certainly um, London's had lots of incidents with the Northern, uh, the Northern Irish problem and the IRA over the years, that people who were exposed initially to ter- terrorism beforehand did better. And that one of the things perhaps um, that this shows is, is, is that we we need to make sure that, that people are, are well aware of the true risks and, and we don't allow ourselves perhaps to, to make too much of something because uh, you can make it all in the mind otherwise. So I want to go back to this key point about being able to contact other people, particularly in hours where a mobile phone network may have gone down. In other words, people may, as individuals, need to think ahead to the fact that the usual methods they make of contact with others are particularly vulnerable in a catastrophe. And maybe each individual needs to come up with some kind of plan about what they would do. Yeah, and the plan is, is really about one which allows you to make short-term um, contact with those who you care for and, and that really matter. Uh, and I say there must be a variety of routes that you can do that, um, but you can't really rely on digital media such as email or such as mobile telephones. And landlines um, would, would certainly be a good idea. Dr Neil Greenberg, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.